Welcome to the Ideas That Change the World podcast with Rabbi Manus Friedman, where we make sure your life will be changed for the better, one idea at a time. Rabbi Friedman is the number one voice of clarity on moral and social issues. So what are we waiting for? Let's go change the world. Welcome back to another selection of The Art of Living, Letters from the Deb. For all of history, one of the problems in life in our daily thinking is to know when to rely on faith and when to use our intelligence, when to search for answers and when to find comfort in simple belief and relying on God. Uh, Here we have two letters. Let's take a look. The first is to a doctor in New York, 1967 is the date. The letter reads as follows. I am in receipt of your two recent letters. With reference to the other topic of our correspondence, namely, my suggestion that one's protests against God are in themselves proof of belief in the existence of God, perhaps I didn't make myself clear, in that it is not the negation which I consider to be proof, so much as the manner in which it is expressed. For when one declares his atheism once and for all, affirming that henceforth he has no place for God in his thoughts, lexicon, and daily life, then the matter is settled and closed. However, when one asserts that God does not exist, yet at the same time, on seeing an injustice in the world, experiences pain and promptly demands where is God, his harping on the same theme again and again is proof that deep in his heart he believes in God, which is precisely why he feels so hurt and outraged. More importantly still, not only does he believe in a supernatural being in general, but also in one who has all the qualities that Jews attribute to him among them that he takes an interest in human affairs, although, as it is written, if you are righteous, what do you give to him, etc. Furthermore, he is a God who intervenes in the daily life of each and every individual, even to the extent of listening to prayer. And prayer, as we conceive it, serves the function neither of tranquilizer nor any other means of emotional relief likely to meet with the approval of a psychiatrist. Every such deception is contrary to the spirit of all religions, particularly Torah, which is called Torah's emes, Torah of truth. The daily Amida includes the prayer for wisdom understanding of knowledge from the one who bestows the gift of knowledge, just as it includes the prayer for healing from the one who heals the sick, in the plain sense of these words. Of course, I do not need much convincing that our prayers include profound meaning and esoteric allusions in the realm of Kabbalah, etc., but that should not obscure the fact that first and foremost, our prayers are the direct expression of our dependence upon God for the satisfaction of elementary needs bread to eat, and clothing to wear. I am, of course, aware of the objections raised to the above, 
some of them mentioned in your recent article and in other pieces. Specifically, how is it possible for a being who is incorporeal, formless, unchanging, etc., to be swayed by prayers for rain in a time of drought or by other such requests? But the fact that the human intellect cannot comprehend something proves nothing more than that. The intellect is limited. We are already told long ago that he is incomprehensible to those who comprehend by the senses. There is no need, therefore, to harp upon a problem with which Jew and non-Jew have been grappling from time immemorial and which continues to challenge us today. I am certain that it is not because of this bothersome question that the unbeliever lost his faith, but the contrary. Having lost his faith, he seeks to appease his conscience by cooking up this problem. In your letter, you mentioned several times the case of Elisha ben Avuya, one of the sages of the Talmud, who lost his faith. However, the sages of the Talmud have generally been more concerned with practical halacha. And it is clear that whatever references we find to him were not intended to give us a complete picture of the man. But from the material available we gather that it was rather the case that he was bothered by the problem of duality, not that he became or remained a convinced atheist. The story in the Gemara is that uh, one of the sages saw a man climb a ladder on a tree and uh, chase away the mother bird in order to take the eggs to feed his father. These two mitzvahs, chasing away the mother bird when taking its eggs and honoring your father, both of them are rewarded, according to Torah, by long life. This man who was performing both these mitzvahs at the same time, fell off the ladder and died. And so the Gemara says that the sage lost his faith. The Rebbe is saying that losing one's faith doesn't mean you become an atheist. It means that he was confused as to where bad things come from. And so, as the Rebbe puts it, he was bothered by the problem of duality. Is there a force other than God that causes bad things to happen? Going back to the letter. With regard to my attitude toward Jewish boys attending college, I need only adduce your own reasoning in support of my position. You illustrate your point by saying that when a person contracts a contagious disease, there must be someone ready to take the risk of trying to heal him rather than leaving him entirely to his fate. I will use the same analogy in my answer to you. Indeed, it is customary to answer a question with a question of my own. Have you ever met a mother who tried to persuade her son to choose for his career the field of infectious diseases, ruling out everything else, even when he himself wished to choose some other means of livelihood, one that would not be quite so fraught with danger. To make the point even stronger, 
What would you think of a mother who, pressing her son to pursue that dangerous career, insists upon his getting started right away by having him mix and come into daily contact with people who have already come down with various infectious diseases on the assumption that he will somehow stumble upon the measures necessary to protect himself from infection and in this way develop into a specialist in the field able to bring relief and cure to the unfortunate sufferers. I believe that in such a case no mother would fail to realize that while the danger is certain and immediate, the chances of her son becoming a specialist are at best years away. The analogy is obvious. If we look at this letter, the writer is asking the Rebbe to explain the uh, question of the injustice in the world, where is God, and so on. The Rebbe's answer is, all you're telling me in your letter, all you're experiencing is the fact that human beings don't understand God. And this is a fact that we should be perfectly comfortable with. It comes as no surprise, and it's as it should be. So by asking the question, you're not displaying or expressing a lack of faith. On the contrary, you're simply saying God is incomprehensible. And he is. And so the Rebbe is saying, let's simply deal with the fact, let's live with the fact that we are not the creator, we are not the master planner for the fate of the universe or of the individual, and therefore we leave these things in God's hands simply because we don't run the world. We're not capable of running the world, and we are not capable of understanding the one who does run the world and who is capable of running the world. So the Rebbe is basically saying, let's be humbled by the truth. Let's accept the fact that we are limited, that we are finite, that we are tiny, and we don't understand what we ourselves experience or see. Let's take another look at another letter. The same year. This is to a man in Rotterdam, Holland. And the letter reads as follows. I am in receipt of your letter. As requested, I will remember you in prayer for the fulfillment of your heart's desires for the good in the matters of which you write. Inasmuch as everything connected with Torah and mitzvahs at the level of daily conduct has to be on the increase, I trust that this is the case with you as well, for it is largely a matter of will and determination. As the sages say, try hard and you will succeed. With regard to the various questions that you have on the topic of faith, I would suggest that you read the Kuzari, which can be obtained in Hebrew and English translation. It will give you new insights and clear up many of your questions. Obviously, it is difficult adequately to discuss and explicate such questions in a letter. But it is not really necessary to rely on correspondence since you're able to discuss these matters with your Rosh Hashiva or Mashpia. However, I will refer to one point here, although it has to be brief. The question is this. What difference can it make to God whether a person does or does not fulfill his commandments? 
There are various analogies to assist us in explaining this question. Take, for example, such an ordinary thing as money, as when one makes a donation for tzedakah. It may well make a difference to the average person whether he gives one gulden or one hundred gulden, but to a multimillionaire, neither amount is of any consequence. However, if this multimillionaire happens to be a man of profound knowledge and feeling, he will consider the amounts of one gulden or one hundred gulden not in terms of his scale of values or their importance to him, the giver, but rather in terms of what they represent to the needy person receiving them. For this reason, our sages of blessed memory explained that sometimes a single pruta, the smallest denomination, for tzedakah, in one case, may be more significant than a huge sum in another case. In a somewhat similar manner, the creator of man, who knows and understands the difficulties that beset every individual, evaluates an action not in terms of its significance to him, but in terms of its significance to the person performing it. Inasmuch as God in his infinite kindness desires that his creations should have some connection with him, he has given us a set of mitzvahs to help accomplish this. And in light of the above-mentioned analogy, the significance of the fulfillment of each mitzvah is judged by him in human terms, according to the effort and dedication that each individual puts into it. To make use of another example, if an individual accomplished something which brought about a change or revolution in the whole world, you would take it for granted that this would be something that God would take notice of. Whereas, you seem to have difficulty with the idea that the act of putting on tefillin can matter to God. Yet the mitzvah of tefillin, which are put on the left hand facing the heart and on the head, which is the seat of the intellect, has the significance of uniting, harmonizing the heart and the mind of the person putting them on. And in terms of the individual, this may be taking place on a scale as critical and as significant to him as some earth-shattering event would be to God. Now here, in this letter, we find a completely different approach. The writer asks, how are we supposed to understand an infinite God taking an interest and responding to such uh, elemental things, to such simple things as uh, our prayers, our mitzvahs, and so on. The Rebbe doesn't say, except on faith that God is beyond our understanding, that we cannot explain and shouldn't hope to be able to explain how God works and how an infinite God can also be concerned with finite matters. But the Rebbe doesn't say that. The Rebbe offers a somewhat lengthy explanation with an analogy and so on, making it very clear 
that there is no mystery here and that we need not accept on faith, but that it makes perfect sense that God considers our behavior on human scale rather than on a divine, infinite scale. Now, there may be two reasons, or perhaps more than two reasons, that this letter is different from the previous letter. The first thing is, the answer given to a question needs to not only resolve the question itself, but to somehow strengthen and aid the one who is asking the question in living his life properly, in fulfilling his mission properly, and not only in finding an answer to the question that he's asking at the moment. Or in different words, when a person asks a question about faith, it might be that he is a student, that he is a seeker, that he's an intellectual, and he needs answers to his questions, but at the same time, he is not lacking in faith. His faith is not weak, his faith is not feeble, his faith is not shaken. But he likes to understand, and so he asks questions. In such a case, the proper response would be to offer intellectual insight, to offer to study, to learn, to explain, and to satisfy the intellect. If the question, on the other hand, reveals some weakness in faith, some lack of faith, then what the person needs is not only an answer to his question, but a solution to his problem. He needs his faith strengthened. Because since the question is coming not from an intellectual place, but from a weakness of faith, as the Rebbe said in the previous letter, it's the loss of faith that is causing these questions. Let's read that line again. He seeks to appease his conscience by cooking up this problem. Well, if that's what's going on, then answering the question will only lead to a new question, to a new problem, because there's a discomfort, there's a, an imbalance there that needs to be compensated for. So in the absence of faith or in the lack of faith, he is coming up with these complaints or with these questions which will not be satisfied by any intellectual explanations. And so in consideration of the person's problem, you strengthen his faith rather than answer his question. In fact, the mitzvah to know God, to study godliness, to study those parts of Torah that explain God or give us some insight into godliness, that mitzvah comes from the quote from the verse, know the God of your fathers and serve him with a whole heart. Which means that in order to serve God with your whole heart, it's not enough to have faith, you also have to have knowledge. Know the God of your fathers, and that will enable you to serve him with your whole heart. But as you notice, the commandment or the instruction is, know the God of your fathers. That's different from saying, know that there is a God. 
The God of my fathers means the God in whom I believe. The God of my fathers means the God of whom I have heard, of whom I have been taught, of whom my parents believed in, in whom my ancestors believed in. So the God of my fathers means I have a God, I know there's a God, I believe in God, I trust in God, because that's what my fathers did. Unless I'm willing to assume that all of our ancestors were delusional and that they were mistaken and that they were superstitious and so on, which, of course, we're not ready or willing to believe, then the God of our fathers is the God in whom we ought to believe, in whom we have believed, and in whom we will continue to believe. It is called the God of our fathers because since I don't have knowledge of God personally, my connection to God comes through the ancestors. Their knowledge, their experience of godliness, their experience with God is my access to God. So on top of that, having a God of my fathers, I am now instructed to know study in order to know the God of my fathers. But if I don't have that faith, if he is not already the God of my fathers, then knowing him will not be a solution and will probably fail. So, if the person has the faith and is asking the question from an intellectual place, then an answer, a scholarly answer, is the appropriate thing. If he is lacking in the faith of the God of my fathers, then he needs to get back on track with his faith. And then, as in the first letter, the Rebbe says, you don't have an intellectual problem. You're simply saying that God is beyond comprehension. And that is true. And that's acceptable. There's another possibility as to the difference between these two letters. In the first letter, it seems, the writer is asking more about physical events, tragedies, uh, sad events, pain, the righteous suffering, and so on. In the second letter, the writer seems to be asking more about our morality. Can our morality affect God? Does a mitzvah really make a difference to him? Giving a nickel to tzedakah, to charity, does that really make a difference to God who is infinite? So in the first question, in the first letter, the question is, does God really care about the events, the physical events in the finite world? In the second letter, the question is, does God really care about our mitzvahs, about our morality? In the case of suffering, there is no mitzvah There is no moral need to explain the suffering. If a person is upset by the suffering and continues to question where is God every time something painful happens, that itself, as the Rebbe mentions in the first letter, that itself is an expression of faith. So there is no immoral or moral question here. It is simply a painful question. 
The pain is justified. The pain is necessary. The pain is appropriate. The question that comes from the pain, where is God? Why is he allowing the suffering? This too is appropriate. And in questioning that, you are actually expressing a deep-seated faith in God. The only thing missing is the humbling realization that although we are pained by the question and should be, we at the same time recognize that it is not within our capacity to understand how God runs the world. But in the second letter, where the question is, does my mitzvah make a difference? Here there is no virtue to the question. It doesn't have the virtue of objecting to pain. Also, in the case of doing a mitzvah, since we're supposed to serve God with joy and do the mitzvah wholeheartedly, to not understand the significance of the mitzvah would necessarily diminish the enthusiasm and the joy with which we do the mitzvah. So when a person asks, why should there be suffering in the world? That can be described as a good question. In other words, a question with a moral with a moral uh, element, with a moral streak in it. But when a person says, what value is a mitzvah? This question doesn't have a moral content or a moral ingredient, and therefore it needs to be resolved, it needs to be answered. And when it is answered, as in the second letter, as the Rebbe says, God considers a mitzvah not in terms of his own scale of measurement, but rather on the scale of the human being. How significant is the tzedakah to the person receiving it? Or how significant is the mitzvah of putting on tefillin to the person who is putting them on? Then the mitzvah is completely meaningful and significant and can rightfully be compared to an event that is uh, earth-shattering. And that is the difference between faith and knowledge and knowing where to use one, where to use the other.